And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. here from our radio and television studios in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. Folks, you are tuned right, you are, you are tuned properly to the Hagman and the Hagman Report. We broadcast live every weeknight from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Global Star Radio Network. That's the place to be with such luminaries as Russ Dizdar, Ted Brower, so many others. Oh, Dave Hodges. I, boy, if I start naming them all, you know, we'll get lost. But we're, we're simulcast, not just on, um, on Global Star, but we'll start, we're simulcast. Yeah, I can talk on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and you can watch us live and by archive on YouTube Live, YouTube, right there. Just go to hagmanandhagman.com, select your venue, whether you want to listen or watch or both. And of course, HagmanReport.com for news, information, and analysis that you need to have in these perilous times. Don't forget, we have two websites, Hagman and Hagman.com, HagmanReport.com. Bookmark them both. I'm Doug Hagman at the helm, the fellow investigator, researcher, and of course, my son, Joe Hagman. Something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. And tonight, this episode is going to be one of the more critical episodes. You know, we are winding down. We, we are winding into a period, I think, of like no other. And tonight's guest is a man I've been following his work. I've been reading his material. I've read his book, his one book, Technocracy Rising. Our guest tonight is Patrick Wood. He's a leading and credible expert on sustainable development, something everyone's heard about. The green economy. You've heard about it. Mm-hmm. Agenda 21, 2030 agenda. And of course, historic te- technocracy. Now, he's the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, out last year. If you don't have yourself a copy of this book, hmm, you're missing out because I, in fact, I have I've read from him. Yeah, there it is. I've read it twice. I've read from his book and and cited his book on this very, this very show. And I think we do. I do on a weekly basis. You you know, (laughs) because everything in that book, folks, is topical. Now, he, Patrick Wood is a, he's a leading expert on the Trilateral Commission. See, we talk about the Trilateral Commission. Now we have an expert on the Trilateral Commission. Their policies. Their achievements in creating their self-proclaimed this new international economic order, which is the essence of sustainable development. Look no further than the Trilateral Commission to understand what this green agenda is, what the sustainable development is on a global scale. Now, Patrick Wood is an economist by education. He's a financial analyst and a writer by, by profession. And he's an American constitutionalist by choice. Now, those are his words. And I would describe them the same way. In my book, you know, I, 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 folks, I look up to a number of, just a, a limited number of people. And in terms of research, investigation, Patrick Wood is second to none, in my view. He deserves a badge. We, we, we should, we, 
we should make him an honorary investigator, private investigator, send him the badge, the paperwork, because he's that good. He, while maintaining, and not too many people are able to do this, while maintaining a biblical worldview, you see, through the lens of the Bible, prophetic, and scripture, this is how we have to look at things today without being so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good as to cite Chuck Baldwin from yesterday. Now, he's he has deep historical insights into the modern attacks on sovereignty, the very topics that we're talking about today. Property rights, personal freedom, such attacks are epitomized by the implementation of United Nations policies. And these include Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, Sustainable Development, Smart Growth, Smart Grid, Smart This, and the widespread adoption of common core state standards for our schools. That's right. He's a frequent speaker. He can speak better than I can, most assuredly, which everyone's out there is clapping. In fact, Eric's clapping. Um, and he's a guest on radio shows across the, across the world. In fact, uh, I have to check on this, but I believe it was just not too long ago on Coast to Coast. Uh, anyway, um, his current research builds on the hegemony of the Trilateral Commission, focusing on specifically on technocracy. And if you don't know what technocracy is, he's going to tell you. Transhumanism, yeah. scientism, and transforming global economics, politics, and religion. This is Patrick Wood. This is our guest today. Now, I want to mention, I'm honored to, to mention that portions of the nice broadcast brought to you by AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. That's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a prep mode today, right now. And I was talking with Joe and Eric and my daughter, Jackie, who's just a tremendously intelligent young lady. And I was, we are talking about preps and, and she said, you know, what what will happen? And, and I mean, she, she's kind of getting into the, this mindset and saying, you know, there's something really wrong with things. And well, so what would happen if there was something that took place? And of course, supply disruptions came to mind. And and she she loves to eat. She's got a wonderful figure, but she she loves to eat. Eat good food. <laughs> now wait a second. Eat good food. And, she, and she's sitting in the studio here. Uh, I, I, I have to add, but she loves to eat good food. And here's here's the deal. Here's the deal behind this. I fed her some chicken from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. I fed her some vegetables from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. And she, I asked her, without knowing it, and she said, hey, this is pretty good. And she went for seconds, and I asked her how she liked it. I mean, overall. And she said, aside from your cooking, it's, it's great. Good food. Thank you. Well, I said, do you realize that this is freeze, the, the long-term storable food? No. Yeah. It's that good, folks. You could eat it every day without an emergency. AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. They've got the Thrive brand of food. They'd even have powdered water if if that would be applicable. That's a joke, but in, of course. Folks, visit AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com for their Thrive brand of food. Dietary needs, whatever your special needs might be, they do free consults. Chance from American Survival Wholesale. And it's a veteran-owned, Christian-owned company. They have the same values as you and I. 
tested and proven by my daughter, Jackie, americansurvivalwholesale.com. Also, a four paws up from Lady, who got some leftovers and loved it, americansurvivalwholesale.com. One announcement, <clears throat> two announcements, actually, before we bring Mr. Wood on. I don't know whether you saw the news today. And, folks, this is a message I want you to please listen very carefully to this message. Hillary Clinton went after Alex Jones today, personally. Hillary Clinton went after those who she and her team considers to be the right-wing conspiracy. If you have followed my writings and followed this program, Hillary, Diane Rodham, the witch, the yak, time for a yak attack, Clinton... If you follow my writings, you, you've seen where I've been pretty heavy on Hillary, Diane, Rodham, the witch, the yak, Clinton. Well, she's coming out swinging, folks. She's attacking Jones. She's attacking, and, and I, I just, I, I choose not to get into it right at this moment, but folks, let me tell you something. They are on the attack. Now, you know I've been on with Alex Jones a couple of hours. In fact, last week, I think it was. You know that we all have targets on our back. Now, these people are desperate. They're evil. And they were informed that their political nemesis, Dick Morris, is going to appear on this program next week. That's right. You heard me. Dick Morris, the former political consultant to the Clintons. He's going to join us next week. But I just want to say this. It, the landscape is changing, has changed, effectively changed today. We are under attack. If you're a conservative, you are under attack. You just might not know it yet. Please take that to, to heart. And again, as I mentioned, next, uh, next week, next Wednesday, Dick Morse, Thank you, John Robertson. He's going to be joining us on our program. Former Clinton political strategic analyst, political analyst, who knows the Clintons inside and out and has a new book out as well. But, again, those those are the two announcements I I wanted to make. Folks, take me very seriously and take me at my word. Understand that that they are, that that the left-wing Nazi, democratic, socialist, globalist, Luciferian elite are coming after all of us. Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. We're going to get right to our guest, Mr. Patrick Wood, author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. This is not only the latest book by Patrick Wood, but this is the topic of discussion for tonight, as this pertains to so much of the issues we talk about from uh, Bible prophecy to economics to political science and the dark horse of the new world order and the new international economic order. Mr. Patrick Wood, it's so great to have you on the Hagman and Hagman Report for the first time. Um, how are you doing? Hi, Joe. Hi, Doug. I'm doing great. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to address your uh, your listeners out there uh, across the country and world. And I'm sure we're going to have a great program tonight. 
Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you for, for joining us and agreeing to come on. Um, a lot of people have read your book, me and uh, my father included, and we find it fascinating. And for those of you who might be unfamiliar in the audience, I want to ask Patrick this for you. What is technocracy? Wow. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I use this word on purpose because historically it's the right word to use. Uh, for the most part, we're going to talk a lot about uh, um, sustainable development, Agenda 21, stuff like that that emanates from the United Nations. But what all those things are, global warming included, what all those things are is warmed over technocracy from the 1930s. And what it was back in the 1930s was a, a very popular movement in the United States. It was uh, called Technocracy, Inc. It was pre preceded by a stint at Columbia University for about a year. They actually got thrown out of Columbia. Imagine that. I guess too hot to handle even for that progressive uh, institution. But uh, technocracy was an economic system that was cooked up by scientists and engineers, prominent ones too, I might add, of that day, because they believed that uh, capitalism was dead they thought certainly it had died after the you know Great Depression started and things were very bad. They thought it's just a matter of time that it's going to breathe its last breath and society is going to fall apart. So scientists and engineers to the rescue. And they cooked up this economic uh, utopian-type system called technocracy. And here's how they defined themselves in 1938, finally, in a magazine appropriately called The Technocrat. <laughs> Imagine that. The Technocrat is one of their official magazines. They said, and this is a direct quote from the magazine, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. Close quote. That's the best definition in one sentence that I've ever seen. I couldn't do any better if I tried. And I could have written this yesterday. I'm, you know, it's a, this, this definition is still just as good today as it was back then. It's the science of social engineering. Uh, that ought to be enough right there to put the hair up on the back of your neck, I think. Uh, Absolutely. You know, what is, yeah, what is the science of social engineering? Well, we'll mention this later, I'm sure, too, but um, there was a book written in 1932 by Aldous Huxley. It was called Brave New World. Now, the phrase Brave New World is currently in English vernacular all over the place. Anytime something happens of a weird name, oh, it's a Brave New World, isn't it? Nobody really knows that Huxley, who was a Brit, was a kind of a name dropper and a jet setter back in those days. There weren't jets, but he was that, he was that kind of guy. Uh, Huxley observed technocracy uh, even as it was at Columbia University and it inspired him to write his book Brave New World not too many people know that no but that's the first time uh, us hearing about this and we have a frequent guest Paul McGuire who writes extensively about Huxley and his work actually, in Brave uh, New World actually no I talked to Paul about this uh, about three weeks ago in fact, Patrick Wood's name came up, and we talked about Julian Huxley. Uh, you did say Julian, right? 
No, not Julian. Or Alex, or Aldous, Aldous, I'm sorry. Aldous, Aldous, yeah, Aldous. Right, right. They were brothers, as you know. Right. And, uh, yeah, uh, okay, got it. So, yes, but it's very interesting and, and noted in your writings. Go ahead, sir. Well, the, my my point was that um, you know different people might have had different observations at the time, but that was a prominent one. And the conclusion was scientific dictatorship, and that's exactly where technocracy is taking us today. We we've seen this play out uh, over the last uh, certainly over the last forty years since the founding of the Trilateral Commission. I might add, nineteen seventy three, and you know, this is the dominant meme in the world today, the science of social engineering. And you notice the word entire appears twice in that definition. This is interesting, an interesting word. I stress that because, it, well, it said, talks about the entire social mechanism and it talks about the entire population. I mention that because of programs like No Child Left Behind, the entire population. Um, you see that language in uh, frequently in the 2030 Agenda document that uh, is called inclusiveness. Everybody, everybody has to participate. Nobody gets left behind. Um, this is important to technocracy to have everybody in the system because, of course, you cannot be managed. You cannot be the object of management unless you're in the system. So they desperately want to include everybody in the social mechanism so that they can apply their science of social engineering to direct society the way they think it ought to go. There's problems with that, obviously. Um, a lot of people, including probably you and me, don't want to be told to do by some social engineer or scientist or engineer in general uh, what we ought to do with our time, money, talents, expertise, and life. It's not their life. It's our life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of an age-old problem on one hand, but we really see it working out today because, oh, man, so many people are interested in telling you and me what to do. And they don't know us at all, of course. They just say, well, this is what you ought to do. I say, well, what authority to say that? Well, science, science says that you should do this, that, and the other. Oh really? I've never met science. Could you maybe you could introduce me someday? Well, no, you can't. You can't meet science. You don't have a PhD. <laughs> you got to have at least a PhD to meet to meet the oracle of science, right? So forget that. You're never going to meet science, and I won't either because I don't have that PhD. Um, but science says what you ought to do, and therefore you should just be trusting and quit being a troublemaker and a skeptic. Uh, quit being a denier, like Al Gore calls us, you know, um, because deniers deserve to be punished uh, for not believing like him. Uh, this is a very insidious situation we find ourselves in today. We're moving rapidly towards this this system of scientific dictatorship, and I should stress probably at the just at the outset here, I'm not talking about bashing all engineers or scientists. There's many, many good scientists and engineers who have their heads screwed on right and don't want to take over the world. Plenty of them. But the ones that do want to take over the world, they're, they're the problem that we're dealing with here. And, um, you know, the other thing we should stress, too, is we talk about dictatorship. I'm not talking about Hitler 
I'm not talking about Stalin, you know, that type of dictator, Mao Zedong. I'm not talking about a person who is a dictator. The dictator in this case is the system. This is new. This has never happened before like this. The system itself becomes the dictator. Now, there are people who make policies in that system who, you know, create software algorithms and stuff to corral you this way or that way, but um, it's, uh, it's basically the system that is constraining us, that's putting us into this straitjacket, if you will, uh, denying our denying our choices, denying our movement, causing us to modify our behavior because it has us corralled in. Uh, some people kind of feel like a a lonely steer out in that giant feedlot in the prairie, <laughs> you're, you're with hundred thousand cattle, <laughs> and uh, you know they all look alike. <laughs> but that's right. But they're all managed, shoot right. Into they're all managed scientifically. That's right. They got they got the the most scientifically designed ration of food that they could possibly have. They get weighed, every, you know, all the time. They get poked. They get uh, well. They get castrated and cut. Stuff like that. Man, they just shove them this way and shove them that way, and they do all best they can do is go moo. And um, uh, you know, people are starting to feel that way. I think I hear this all the time. I say, man. It, you know what? What's next on this agenda? Well, scientific dictatorship is is the big problem today, and we're. I hope we can really develop that thought. And if we do have a chance to develop a biblical thought along the way, I would also point out that uh, that this system of uh, scientific dictatorship uh, very likely plays into directly into end-time prophecy. Uh, I personally believe it does. Some people don't, obviously. But I think there's um, I think there's reason for the study of Bible prophecy today simply because of this system that's rising up around the world. And uh, we've never had a global delusion before. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there have been continental delusions where a continent or a part of a continent will believe some screwball thing and run off, you know, on a tangent. But there's never really been a global delusion before. And the Bible prophesies that there will be. And, I, you know, we see that today. The global delusion is in the form of sustainable development, global warming, green economy, those sorts of things that the United Nations has taken to every nation on Earth. Uh, all 193 nations that belong to the United Nations have signed off on the 2030 agenda, for instance, and on the global warming pact uh, from last uh, November, uh, October, November. So we're in, we're kind of in dark times on one hand, but on the other hand, uh, those of us who are who are becoming more aware of the topic have an opportunity to come up with creative solutions to try and throw a monkey wrench into their mechanism. And I would say, uh, no matter how pessimistic it seems. Uh, Americans found a way to reject technocracy in the 1930s, and they did so quite effectively. And that means that our generation also potentially could reject technocracy as well. Uh, but time is a wasting. I'll say that. So <laughs> yes, here, here we are talking about it. <laughs> we got about two minutes before the break, and folks who are who might have joined us late, Patrick Wood is our guest. He is the author of 
Technocracy Rising. Um, folks, you want to get this book uh, for sure, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. We were just talking about what is the definition of technocracy, and it's the science of social engineering, the system of a scientific dictatorship. And you mentioned something important, Mr. Wood, the uh, correlation between the current political climate, uh, spiritual climate, and um, Bible prophecy. And in the foreword of the book, you have in here uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, which I find is one of my most favorite Bible verses, which goes on to say, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. And that makes me wonder, you know, uh, when we talk about this scientific dictatorship, um, we know that this one world system of religion, uh, economics, political, and military might have been before uh, in the days of Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, and uh, what they did after the flood. And, are, I mean, we're seeing this come around again. When we come back from the break, uh, Mr. Wood, if we could jump into the history of technocracy, and then from there go on to how it crept into our system. Again, you mentioned the 1930s, how the American uh, people have fended it off uh, for a time, and it's rearing its ugly head back around again. And, and this time around, we are living in a technological age, an age of transhumanism, an age in which technology is accepted like, uh, you know, your right hand. It's a, It's basically a part of us. And how can we fend off something that has become so close and near and dear to us um, in our everyday life? Folks, we're listening. We're, we're listening. You're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report with Patrick Wood, uh, radio show host, author, Technocracy Rising. Folks, go to Amazon. Check out the book. Go to his website. Sign up for his newsletter. We'll be right back after these short messages. Stay with us. Listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report, our very special guest to, to, during this show, a show dedicated to technocracy. Technocracy Rising is the book written by Patrick Wood, our guest. His website, technocracy.news. Now, on his website, you can check. There, there's an 11 minute video. Go ahead and watch that to determine whether you should, you need to read Technocracy Rising. It, it it opened an entire new chapter for me, and, and, and it got me looking at different things. I used to believe that communism was actually the mechanism for this new world order and socialism and all of the isms, but 
when the deep, dark, dirty, uh, t- titty, uh, you know, t- titty winks, uh, tiddly winks, uh, aspect of this, <laughs> when you start, when you start flipping the, the, um, the, the layers of the onion back, what am I saying for crying out loud? When you start, when you start peeling the layers of the onion back, um, it, you start to see the technocracy when you understand the the Brave New World, these um, the books by uh, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, who believe that technocracy would result in a scientific dictatorship. Brave New World, nineteen eighty four, of course. And, and then you read Technocracy Rising. You get it. You get it. I mean, Patrick Wood is articulate, he's informative, he's well-researched. Website, technocracy.news. Again, the book, Technocracy Rising. I, I highly recommend it to everyone. And just before we before we get back to Mr. Wood, I just want to say this. The, the first shots, shall we say, the opening salvo in a real PR war were fired today by Hillary Diane Rodham, the witch, the Yak Clinton, uh, at all of the right, right, uh, right wing news. I, I don't want to, I hesitate to say right wing. It's the conservatives who are calling out the criminal cabal that surrounds Clinton and the Clinton Foundation and the people who are writing about her. The attack has started. I mean, for real, the real attack has started. So just let me say that. And uh, all of us, the conservatives, are in the path of the the bullets, the salvo. Trust me on this when I say that this is this was an enlightening day, um, informative day. I'm not going to say it was it was it was good. It was just uh, it was bizarre, and we're seeing things now that you just uh, I just never thought I'd see. Again, our, our guest is Patrick Wood. I'm going to turn the floor over to him, Joe. Um, Patrick Wood is, is perhaps one of the most well-researched, articulate men about technocracy. So, Mr. Wood, thanks for joining us. Thank you for being our guest, and thank you for writing the book that you did. I'm going to turn it over to you. Biblical worldview, technocracy, scientific di- dictatorship, just laid all out. Yeah, the history of technocracy. Well, okay. <clears throat> the history of technocracy goes back a very long ways. We have to to really get it. We have to go back into the 1800s. Actually, the the philosophical father of technocracy was a French philosopher. Uh, do you want his English name or his French name? His <laughs> his English name is Henry Saint Simon. His French name is Henri Saint-Simon. He lived between 1760 and 1825, and you can look up Henry. It's H-E-N-R-I, Saint-S-I-M-O-N. He's not not Saint S-T, period. He's not a Catholic saint, okay? That's his name, actually, Saint-Simon. And uh, he's recognized as the father of technocracy, even by the technocrats in the 1930s themselves. Um, He was a very, is an interesting character. A lot of stuff came out of his writing and his, uh, you know, thinking, whatever. He had a heavy influence on Karl Marx, um, on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
the philosopher, French philosopher, and August Comte, who was the father of sociology. Uh, he was uh, Saint Simon's primary disciple back in those days. And um, well, between between uh, Henri and August Comte, um, they kind of set the stage for all of technocracy and all of transhumanism, I might add, too. And um, it, to understand why I bring up the word transhumanism in the same breath as technocracy, you're going to see that they're like Siamese twins that are joined at the hip. In other words, if technocracy is the science of social engineering, which has to do with society, uh, with the global economy, things like that, then transhumanism has transhumanism has to do with the science of human engineering, and it, it might make some intuitive sense to you to imagine why would anybody want to create a science-based society without having science-based people to live in it. Well, that's kind of self-evident. It wouldn't work very well if you had a science-based society and you only had people maybe like you and I that aren't, aren't particularly, you know, you know, we don't aspire to be immortal and have science, you know, rework us and create humans 2.0 and all that kind of stuff right under our nose. But technocracy really started to take effect um, and in the early 1900s. People started talking about scientific management. World War One was a big catalyst, I believe, Uh as a lot of engineers that contributed to World War One, to the devastation of it, I might say, uh, there was a little bit of angst um, amongst the scientific community, the engineering community, that they had somehow contributed to the first mechanized war of all history. And it was true. They, that was them. <laughs> they did it. They created those those tanks and those airplanes and the bombs and the machine guns and all the stuff people used to kill each other during World War One. So they had a lot of time to think about stuff during the 20s, the Roaring Twenties, and um, by the time the Great Depression hit, they figured that uh, it was curtains on technoc on uh, capitalism, free enterprise, and that they needed to do something to correct the situation. So. They set about purposely on a plan to create an alternative economic system. This this is where it's different and um, than anything else we've ever seen in the world. Um, when I say an economic system, the current price-based economic system that we that we know and we grew up with and we're perfectly comfortable with, where supply and demand determines. Um, the price of goods in the marketplace where people are free to make a better mousetrap if they can and uh, consumers are free to choose mousetrap A or mousetrap B or mousetrap C or whatever they fancy. Um, the price-based economic system, the technocrats believed, was completely outmoded, doomed to failure, and it needed to be replaced by another kind of economic system altogether. Their economic system was to be based on energy. Energy. And their logic was that everything in life takes energy to happen. 
Uh, now, if there was no machines and no electricity, you, you simply have manpower. U, U equals one manpower. If you had a horse, uh, you had one horsepower. If you had a team of four horses, you had four horsepower. And um, they would they would argue that the addition of energy into society uh, was essential to all economic activity. So what better way to control economic activity than through the control of energy? And the technocrats, while they were at Columbia University, actually cooked up a scheme for uh, an energy currency that was to be issued to people, kind of like a script in a way, a little bit like food stamps are issued today. And they envisioned making a forecast of all the energy that would be produced in the next month or three-month period, and they would simply divide that by the population and send out a ration of energy credits to all the people in that society. The idea would be then you could take your energy credits down to the store and buy stuff according to the energy that it went in to make that stuff. So a shirt, for instance, you could think theoretically that a, a shirt was grown by a farmer who maybe had a tractor and he had to ship it to a, a, a cotton gin and they had to put it on a boat and somebody else sewed it up on a sewing machine. That all took energy. It finally got sent out to a store, and you ended up buying it down at Target or wherever, Walmart or something. You bought the shirt. Well, there's a finite amount of energy wanted to make that shirt, and they they hypothesized that that's the perfect pricing system. We don't need we don't need to have uh, supply and demand tell us what to price things. We'll price things according to energy. Everybody will get their fair share of energy in the system. And there were some caveats on their energy currency. One is that it would expire at the end of the term. If you didn't spend it, you lose it. Uh, so there's no way to carry over energy credits into the next period. Next period, you get another quota. Everybody does. And so they surmised that there was no need to save money, if you will, in such a system. There was no need to have private property either because everything was going to be essentially managed and controlled by the scientists and engineers. So this economic system, an energy-based economic system, another way to express that is a resource-based economic system, is to be based on science. They wanted to engineer all production and all consumption. Now, what that means is, if you're a businessman, they want to tell you exactly what you're allowed to make. If you're a consumer, they want to tell you exactly what you're allowed to consume. And so they're controlling both ends of the system. You can see this is rather a rather totalitarian concept that they cooked up. But um, it's insidious. And you know, let me let me just say some of the some of the highlights of technocracy that I bring up when I speak is by nature it produces volumes of inviolable regulations that are science based. It always comes down to science based regulations that are put forward. It creates totalitarian control in the end, but it's not socialism or communism, both of which were based on a price-based economic system. And it seeks to replace, of course, price-based economic system with an energy-based system, an energy currency. And, uh, you know, having said that, let me read you from the technocracy study course, which was 
written in 1934 by the two co-founders of Technocracy Incorporated. Okay. Uh, Howard, Howard Scott was one guy. The other guy was M. King Hubbard. Uh, that's not the Scientology Hubbard. It's M. King Hubbard. And uh, M. King, you might remember if you know a little bit about little bit about oil history. In 1954, he was the guy that came up with the peak oil theory. That said that we were going to run out of energy someday when reserves cannot be discovered fast enough to take care of demand, etc. And so M. King Hubbard later, 20 years after this, became kind of a founding father of the eco-movement. But that aside, let's rewind back to 1934 when he wrote the Technocracy Study Course. That's available on the Internet, by the way. Go search for it. There's a scanned copy out there. You can get it, download it, see if I'm telling you the truth here. There was only seven requirements that these engineers wrote down. I'm going to read you the first five. Engineers do that. We give an engineer a project, he makes a list of requirements. That's just a knee-jerk reaction for an engineer or a scientist. Here's the first, the first five requirements. That just got you got to ponder this and think about. Wow, is this relevant for today or what? Number one, quote: Register on a continuous 24-hour-per-day basis the net, the total net conversion of energy. Number two. By means of the registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load. Close quote. Let me just stop with those two for a second. Can can you sense the idea of smart grid in those first two requirements? By means of the registration of energy converted and consumed make possible a balanced load. This is the language that we hear from our utility companies today. Thanks to President Obama's launching the Smart Grid project back in 2009 with stimulus money. And the utility companies were glad to take all that stimulus money and shove these smart meters down our throat. Well, I'll suggest to you, this is, this is clear evidence that the technocrats are working this plan today because that was the first two requirements that they had to meet in order for technocracy to succeed was control over energy. Okay, let me read the next three. Remember, there's only five I'm going to give you here. Number three, quote, provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. Number th- four, Quote, provide a specific registration of the type, kind, etc. of all goods and services where produced and where used. Number five, quote, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual plus a record and description of the individual. Close quote. Uh, there's the first five requirements of technocracy. <clears throat> the first three, two rather, allude very directly to spark grid and the control over energy. The last three give you a panoramic view of what I call the total surveillance society. 
provide a specific registration of the type, kind, etc., of all goods and services where used and where produced. Provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual. Uh, think your credit card records, all your purchase records and stuff that are sucked up like so much, uh, so much, uh, you know, dog hair off your rug in <laughs> your house. Uh, they go after everything. The government has collected every conceivable piece of information about members of society, the entire society, not just the terrorists, not just the, the bad guys. They're collecting information on every single citizen and human in our society, and that's true across the globe as well, but especially in America. So a record and description of each individual has been duly created. Uh, specific registration and all records of consumption and production is duly recorded. Uh, energy is being duly recorded. And a continuous inventory of all production and consumption, that's economic talk. That's also being accomplished today. That's yes, right. the essence yeah. Right into Agenda 21. Totally. Uh, exactly totally. what they purport and, and uh, suggest in their plan of total world domination, whether it's control of resources or man-made labor. Um, this is Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030, uh, which is Agenda 21. And um, we see where the, the end game is here. The total well, it's control. control over everything. Yeah. Yeah, control over everything. Everything that moves, everything that doesn't move, everything that's inert, every machine, and every human, and every animal on the face of the planet is in view. <laughs> that's everything. Yeah, that's and it's come out recently that the FBI has been... Um, basically uh, uh, capturing DNA of every person for the last 40 years, cataloging it. And Google and other technological companies have come out and said that they are sequencing and cataloging every living species on Earth. Yes, you're absolutely right. Let me point out, we're going to talk about the Trilateral Commission along the way. Uh, we haven't laid that groundwork yet, but I want to, I want to bring up a point since you, you just kind of, uh, related it. Um, the FBI. Uh, the FBI is one of the big four intelligence agencies, uh, in our country. You got Homeland Security, the CIA, and so on, Department of Justice, and <clears throat> the National Security Agency, and all of these agencies, in fact, all 17 intelligence agencies in the entire country, they answer to one man, or one office anyway. So far, it's always been a man. But that's the director of national intelligence, the direct, the DNI, he's called. He's the intelligence czar for the country. We, don't, we no longer have an independent FBI or a CIA or an NSA. They all work directly for the director of national intelligence. He was given authority to take over all of the other agencies in the country by George Bush, not surprisingly, I guess, in 2005, when that office was created. And 
the the first DNI came in and reorganized the entire intelligence mechanism in the United States. The problem is they didn't really tell anybody how they reorganized it. It wasn't immediately intuitive, and nobody wrote, wrote any newspaper articles about it back then. But they did. And we can see it today. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that this, this has actually been the case today. The DNI is a cabinet-level position, answers to the president, only to the president, and everybody else answers to him. And he, he controls the every line-item budget of every one of the intelligence agencies in our country. He gives them all their marching orders. They can't do anything without the DNI's approval. Well, here's an interesting thing. The first ever director of national intelligence appointed by George Bush was John Negroponte, who just happened to be a member of the Trilateral Commission. When we're done talking about other things that the Trilateral Commission have done to us over the years, you won't be surprised that he picked John Negroponte. But I would ask the question, uh, I think anybody would, did John Negroponte reorganize the intelligence apparatus in America for the good of American citizens? Or did he reorganize the entire intelligence mechanism for the good of the Trilateral Commission and its members? Fair question, in my book. Uh, we're done talking about this. You'll see, yep, that's what they did. That's just one more thing in a long line, a long list of things that these people have done to perpetrate this this fraud on us. They're, they're engineering, if you will, technocracy. They have been since this group has been doing it since 1973 when it was originally founded. I only wish I knew it back then. I didn't when I when I first started writing about the Trilateral Commission. And by the way, my my first two books were called Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes One and Two. Um, that was back in from 1978 to 81. And I co-authored those two books with the late uh, Professor Anthony Sutton. Uh, he passed several years ago, but. Uh, we uh, we documented what these people were doing back then quite well, but we did not understand technocracy. All we knew was th what they said about the new international economic order. That's what they said. So we talked about that a lot. But if we had understand technocracy back then, we would have understood what they meant by the word new. Isn't that funny how just a single, simple little word can make all the difference in your understanding of something? It's just... Absolutely. It, it, you know, it, it kind of, it, it, in a facetious sort of way, it kind of reminds you what Bill Clinton said, what he said, it depends on what the word is means. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, okay, well, whatever. And, what, and with uh, the weaponization of the English language, how they've changed uh, so many words, or the, the, me the meanings of so many different words, uh, really weaponizing the language against yeah. us. Uh, yes. done doing so for the purposes of confusion and it has worked perfectly for them and their agenda right right well the surveillance of, the surveillance of society today is not about protection at all it's not about protection of our country it's not about national security at all 
It's about setting up a data monitoring system for the technocrats to be able to monitor their, their social engineering project. And every good engineer knows you can't, you can't build a factory without monitoring systems in place. You need to know what's going to, you need to know, you know, what's going on out there. Is a, you know, are all the machines working the way they're supposed to? Is a, the assembly line moving? Is the conveyor belt still, you know, tracking? Uh, you have to have monitoring in a modern factory today in order for it to keep running. And, uh, so you can see problems maybe even before they happen. <clears throat> Well, this is the mentality of technocrats, because... You're right, Mr. Wood. Sorry to interrupt you there, but we're coming up against the break. And to give you people an example of what you were just talking about, um, I don't know, about a decade ago, Walmart rolled out an RFID uh, system for their inventory. So when an item was taken off the shelf and purchased, it automatically registered with the computers for them to reorder that same item to keep the stocks, uh, the shelves stocked properly with their products. And this has been rolled out to a number of new applications, and there are a number of other applications on the horizon, including healthcare, that they want to incorporate this technology into. Folks, you're listening to author Patrick Wood, author of Technocracy Rising, we're going to be back with him uh, for the rest of the show, talking about a number of issues pertaining to technocracy and the total system of control through scientific dictatorship it, it encompasses. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Coming to you live, our very special guest, Patrick Wood, technocracy.news. That's his website, technocracy.news. Grab a hold of his book, Technocracy Rising. The information contained between the covers is just absolutely phenomenal. You know, you just look at the book, the back cover, of course, the dark horse of the New World Order is not communism, socialism, or fascism. It's technocracy. I know we're regressing here a little bit, but for those joining us, I want to say hello to the people joining us right now from the great state of Alaska. God bless you. Thanks for checking in with us, as well as the uh, the people in Canada. God bless you. New South Wales, Australia, listening live. Thank you for tuning in. Started in the 1930s and reintroduced by the Trilateral Commission in 1973 as a new international economic order, as Mr. Wood states, stated, and states on the back cover. It is now known by names like sustainable development and the green economy. And, and as Mr. Wood stated, it's technocracy is a movement that began in the 1930s by engineers, scientists, and technicians that proposed the replacement of capitalism with an energy-based economy. That's what we're talking about. That's what the introduction that Mr. Wood gave. And of course, of course, the authors, Huxley, Orwell, believe that technocracy would result in the scientific dictatorship, and isn't that what we're seeing right now? Indeed. Developed right before our very eyes, and 
boy, I hope before the end of the program, Mr. Wood will give us some ideas on how to throw a monkey wrench and a big one at that into this into this plan. Yeah. Before we get to before we get to him, I just want to mention again the importance of this cannot be understated. The war of the war by Hillary Diane Rodham, the which the Yak Clinton is is on. Uh, it's going to be exacerbated when we have Dick Morris on next week, political consultant for the Clintons. Former. Former, that's right. And um, he's going to be giving us book, uh, Armageddon. Armageddon. Right. Um, the subtitle has something to do with the Clintons. Yeah, and I want to thank uh, John Robertson publicly for all of his hard work. But let's get back to Mr. Wood. Mr. Wood, uh, go ahead and continue. Pick up where you left off. We give you the mantle. Uh, to to uh, we, we give you the floor. Go ahead. Thank you. My my floor is uh, well. I guess I yeah. We we won't comment on the condition of the floor. Okay. (laughs) Well, you you know it's bad. Well, I was going to say you know it's bad when, but I'll just leave that go. Yeah, for sure. Well, the idea of scientific control over an economic process—that is, all of the economic process in the world. Um, it depends on total information awareness within that economic system. And that's, that's why I was saying that they, they had to have control over the intelligence network in our country so that they could collect that kind of data that would allow them to do what they intend to do. And this is it. Now, <clears throat> when I first suggested this a couple of years ago, actually I started talking about it before that, before my book, but people Come on. Yeah, that's a little bit far-fetched, isn't it? It's a little radical to think that somebody could actually hijack the entire intelligence network in America for some other peculiar purpose other than the American, you know, protecting America. They said, well, exactly. Here's the evidence that came out since then that just drives this nail home. A few months ago, Obama came out and said that he was going to, that he had built a they called it a secret race database. It wasn't secret at all, but it was a it was a view of the national data set, if you will, that contained information about race and where people lived all over the country, about the cities that they lived in, and um, you know how many how many minorities lived there, and you know how what what did they do how what was their education what was their living standard their income etc they call this a racial database and all it really was was just a, a subset of the data that had to do with race and obama said he's going to use that racial database to rebalance all of the communities in america with racial balancing that's what he called it. Ra- ra- he's going to use this database for that purpose. Now, here's one example of how the information that's being collected by the intelligence community is being used against us and will continue to be used against us. Another perfect example was in Oregon, where Oregon announced, uh, well, I want to say earlier this year, that they're going to put a little black box into automobiles there, and it's going to be a GPS tracking device. It's going to track everywhere your car goes. 
and there'll be monitoring poles, listening stations, if you will, set up where when you drive by one, your your data will be harvested, and the state will send you uh, a special use tax bill. It used to be like gas gasoline taxes paid for the roads, but they're they're thinking this is new. This is a good. This is this is scientific, you know. So. They're going to measure every mile that you drive, whether it was on a freeway, a back street, or whatever, you know, county world, county highway, city highway. And they're going to send you a specialized bill just for you. They're going to calculate it based on your habits and stuff. Well, I was naturally suspicious about such a thing. Who dreams up stuff like this anyhow? So I did some research and looked around, and lo and behold, I came to the University of Iowa, and I found out that this is where one of the seed beds was of this thinking. They were talking about that, this very thing. And I found a slide presentation by one of the professors that had cooked this concept up. And in his slide presentation, he said very bluntly that their intent in the end, their ideal intent is to use data to calculate your carbon footprint so that they can engineer an invoice just for you based on your carbon footprint, like how much grass do you have, how much water do you put on it, what kind of car do you have, do you ride public transit, do you take a bus, do you ride your bicycle to work, you know, what's your lifestyle, how big is your home, do you take vacations, etc., calculating your carbon footprint to create a specialized bill for you as you drive your car on the highway. Now, the question comes up, where is that carbon footprint data housed? Where is it? Well, guess where? It's in the the intelligence community has a nice nifty little database with just about every conceivable piece of information that you can imagine where all it's waiting for is somebody to ask the right question like what's uh, what's Joe Hagman's carbon footprint look like <laughs> has he been a well, good little boy or does he need to be spanked because he's consuming too much well, of I the world you do breathe that's true <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm behind the eight ball there. Uh, yeah. yeah, and this well, is where we're headed. This see, this is using the national database for purposes that have nothing to do with the national database. It's just they're going to use it to punish people for not having a low enough carbon footprint. So, you know, you could conceivably one day be going online to Expedia to buy a plane ticket. Maybe you had to visit a a sick, you know, relative or something in California, and he said, "Man, I got to have an emergency ticket." You get online and you you buy the ticket. You are not buy it, but you get it all lined up and whatever, and go to buy it. And a little message comes up on the screen. Sorry, Mr. Hagman, but you've exceeded your carbon footprint for the last three months. So we can't <clears throat> we can't sell you a ticket, a plane ticket to California at this time. However, um, if uh, if you'd like to try again next month and you do these certain things, I'll give you a list, I suppose, um, 
better luck next time. You know, clean your act up a little bit. Um, <laughs> toe the line. Think about the common good. You know, think think about everybody else instead of just yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that hasn't happened yet. But this is where it's headed. It's just as clear as crystal. When you, The more you understand this kind of garbage, the more you can see what these people are doing. It just blows your mind. And even even when I tell people stuff like this, they still go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't, I can't believe that. <clears throat> Here's the killer example I give them. Go down to your bank on Saturday or after hours and try and draw out all the money in your savings account. Hopefully you got one. But let's say you have $5,000 in your bank. And you go down to the ugly teller. <clears throat> uh, that's the mechanical teller. And you put your card in and you punch up $5,000. And it says immediately, I'm sorry, but your daily limit is $300. So I'll crud. Okay, give me 300 bucks. And you're thinking, I'll get smart. I'll just go down to the branch down the street. And get another three hundred dollars. <laughs> I can do that all day until I get all five thousand bucks. You go down to the other branch, put it in your card. Say, give me three hundred bucks. They say, sorry, Mr. Hagman, you exceeded your daily allowance. You go, oh shoot, I knew I was back at the other bank, didn't it? Darn, I can't get my money out. So then he gets bright idea. You think I'll go over to the competitor's bank across the street where my card will work, and I'll get three hundred dollars out of their bank. And you go over there and you do the same thing. It's the same message. Sorry, Mr. Hagman, you've exceeded your daily allotment of $300. And at that point, you can pound on that machine all you want. You can scream, holler, cuss, stamp your feet, hold your breath until you turn blue. The only thing you're possibly going to do is get the cops down on your you know, butt because they're filming everything that you do in front of the, in front of the ugly teller. And you're not going to get your 5000 bucks for love nor money on a weekend, period, and a subject. And you can go into the, you can yell at the bank manager on Monday all you want. He's just going to say, look, that's a policy that was set above me. I don't have anything to do with it. I can't change it. And I can't, I don't know who, to, I wouldn't even know who to call. Don't have any idea. That's just the policy of our bank. And you'll realize sooner or later you've been had that there just isn't any way. See, this is, this is being constricted by the system. Somebody up there said, don't give them more than 300 bucks a day, period, and a subject. That's it. Could they give them $5,000 if they wanted? Sure they could. They don't want to do that. So that's the policy. They set a policy in place, and all you have to do is follow the policy, and if you follow it, uh, you won't run into trouble with anybody. You don't follow it, there's going to be trouble. This is the nature of technocracy and scientific dictatorship. This is the nature of controlling both production and consumption down to the, you know, to literally to the gnat's whisker. And, uh, you know, we're starting to feel it, but people still don't recognize it yet. There's a lot of angst in America right now. People don't see it. What They feel the pain. They just don't know what's causing the pain. Listen to what <clears throat> Christiana Figueri said last year. She was the head of climate change at the United Nations, and she's in a European press conference. And this is what she said. I watched her lips. I watched it. I've transcribed it. She actually said it. She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind, speaking for the UN, that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years 
since the Industrial Revolution, close quote. Who can't understand that language? <laughs> this, this woman has declared war on the entire economic system of our planet. Capitalism and free enterprise. Uh, it's inconceivable. She said this. They have yeah. a plan. They have intention. They have a time schedule, a defined period of time, she says. I'd like I'd like to see that calendar, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'd like to know it. Absolutely. Can you show me the details, lady? Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Wood, talking about the transformation of the uh, economy through you know this technocracy and system of control. What are we looking at here in terms of the digital currency, di a digital economy? We see a move. Uh, in other countries, uh, Denmark being, you know, one of the, the top countries that we see, uh, cashless societies uh, becoming yeah. the norm. Here in the U.S., you see, you know, in Louisiana, it's illegal to buy secondhand goods, uh, with cash. Um, and we're seeing this war on cash. Yeah. As we know that our U.S. dollar has lost 98, 99% of its value since the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Um, what will this uh, technocracy, this system of control, do to our cash society? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. <clears throat> I probably would have forgotten it. But you remember back to my definition on what is technocracy, where it talked about the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism, and it talks about producing and distributing goods to the entire population, right? Entire, the word entire, no child okay. left behind. No spender left behind. Now, when you hear somebody like Larry Summers, who is one of our, <clears throat> well, I say it loosely, our, one of our top economists. He's a well-known economist. That's better. Um, also a member of the Trilateral Commission, I might add. When you see somebody like Larry Summers producing at least a paper a month or a statement a month on why we need to go cashless, you have to ask the question, okay, something else is afoot here. You know, it's not just, oh, it's not just about laundering money for peace sake. Who, who would believe that? It's not just about catching drug dealers. <laughs> who cares? They're always going to find a way to, to deal drugs. But the cashless society, the purpose that they're pulling cash out is to drive everybody into the system. They can't afford to have 20% of the world outside of the of the financial system they have to force them in now what better way to do that than just pull the money out and say look you're all going to get a card you're all going to get you know maybe your card's going to have uh your food stamp allotment on it maybe it's going to have a you know your your welfare check on it or whatever but everybody's going to get a card whether you want one or not whether you're in Africa whether you're in South America whether you're poor whether you know living out in the middle of the of the of the Serengeti, everybody's going to get a card and be inducted into the digital system. People are still worried about currencies today. Well, the dollar is going to, you know, tank and the, the yuan is going to, you know, take over the world. Oh, maybe it's going to be SDRs with the IMF and, you know, people get all worked up over currencies and which one is going to be supreme. They don't get it at all. If they understood technocracy, they wouldn't even be opening their mouth. Because what's coming, there's only one currency that can support technocracy. Only one. 
And that's an energy currency. That's a, that's the lifeblood of an economic system, right? It's like you got blood in your body. I hope you do. No, I know you do. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> if we didn't have blood in our body, we would not be alive. The life is in the blood. That's what the Bible says. And <clears throat> the life of an economic system is in the currency. It's the blood that makes everything flow and work in an economic system. Technocracy requires, by definition, an energy currency, period, and a subject. We so, see the root, we see the building blocks of this with all the stinking cap and trade programs around the world and the taxation programs that are being designed to tax people on carbon, which is always related to energy, by the way. And two so years ago, we actually saw an energy conference take place, a currency conference take place in Croatia, of all places, where economists came from all over the world to talk about an energy-based currency. <laughs> Lo and behold. Uh, with this energy-based currency, could we see it to the point where uh, a person has to contribute labor uh, or some form of uh, contribution on a daily basis in order to be able to eat? Um, or is this something different that you're talking about? No. <clears throat> I think that um, when all of your data is available at their disposal they will be able to decide how to allocate energy credits to you. And you can say this for sure. If you have a very poor carbon footprint where you're cons where they think that you're consuming more goods and services than, than what everybody else is and what you deserve, they'll punish you there will be something that will work against you to try and force you into the correct behavior. Whether that be cutting your energy allocation, whether that be limiting your purchase of certain items, I can't say. I mean, that's just that would just, just, just be speculating. But this is the concept that they write and talk about. So <clears throat> people that play along with their little game, will have all of the uh, dancing in the daisies that they can stand. If you don't go along with their little program and do what they say, you'll be walking on a bed of hot coals. And they'll say, take your pick. We don't care. If you want to walk on hot coals, go right ahead. But, uh, you know, they'll try and force you into their behavior. Um, <clears throat> we see this kind of behavior modification, by the way, going on constantly in society in various ways, whether it be through marketing and propaganda type stuff or whether it be, you know, things like you're, you know, like you can't get money out of the bank on the weekends. So if you want money, you better do it beforehand. Like during the week, better plan ahead. Um but, you know, their, their intent is to force you into behavior that they have specified as the correct behavior. This is the problem. This is the rub. It just is, it just stinks. You know, I had a friend who lived in Switzerland for a time, that moved from Germany to Switzerland. They had to rent a flat. And, uh, they were there for a while. And one, one afternoon, uh, the, the wife of my friend had a load of laundry in. And uh, all of a sudden, at full of water, 
just go like that. And all of a sudden, the washer stopped. And she like creaked, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, I, like there's water in the tub. I can't, I can't even get them out. I, how, how am I going to get them dry? And so she called the apartment manager and, you know, eventually somebody came up and, and she explained the dilemma. My machine is broken and, you know, what could have happened to it? He, he laughed and said, oh no, um, your, your machine was turned off by the power company. Uh, they do that sometimes because, you know, they, they put policies in they, they want you to wash your clothes after midnight. And if you exceed too much of a, this or that or whatever, you know, they'll just shut it off. So he said, don't worry about it. Just wait till midnight, turn your machine on, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and he left. And she was sitting there looking at her washing machine full of water, understanding a little bit more about technocracy than she, she probably ever wanted to know. <laughs> But hey, you know, that's if if they can, they will, and this is what they're doing. This kind of stuff is just happening all over the world. It's just absolutely incredible. And to think to imagine what how these people can arrive at this kind of mentality where they think it's okay to tell everybody else what to do. It's just incredible. Fits right into Bible prophecy. So I mean Well it it, it it does. I mean you you can see how the system could be what I want to, what's the word I want to use? Could be a, a set of policies could be put in place, software policies, in such a system as we have today. That if you exceed the boundaries of what they think is the right kind of life, you simply are going to have a switch thrown on you. And you won't be in the system anymore. You'll be blocked, if you will, from buying and selling. Especially if there's an energy currency that does all, you know, that allows for the buying and selling. Uh, now, Mr. Still Mr. Wood, if I could just get your opinion here before the break. Um, is this a system? I mean, obviously we've seen this, uh, incrementally be implemented as time continues to roll on and it's becoming more overt. Do you believe that this can be implemented without some kind of major event, or would we need some kind of you know cyber event that you know knocks all the uh, the computers down and banking and and whatnot for a short period of time, then they reboot and say this is what we have to do, or couldn't this just be rolled in you know right on top of the current system? Um, as in the 1930s, capitalism has to be perceived as dead. That has not happened yet. I think we're probably well on our way to that at this point, looking at the global economic system. But um, capitalism needs to die and roll over before technocracy can really take hold. They, they're laying the infrastructure of technocracy today as we speak. But the greater part of capitalism and free enterprise is going to have to take a nosedive before the phoenix of technocracy can rise up out of the ashes, if you will. Maybe that's a little draconian to say it that way, but um, you know that's the way it looked back in the Great Depression. They thought they really thought it was dead, and that the end of the world had come for tech for uh, capitalism and free enterprise. So we see this. We see things today that 
that kind of indicates somebody's trying to push Humpty Dumpty off the wall. <laughs> if Humpty Dumpty is capitalism for enterprise in our economic system, uh, he might fall anyway on his own power, but it seems like somebody is trying to give him a good old shove off the wall. There's a huge moral hazard, isn't there, amongst the global elite right now, uh, wanting to speed the process up and let's just let's just get it over. Would would you? Let's just go do it. <laughs> and <laughs> let's hurry up that's with it, man. We're ready for something new. That's the attitude. Mr. Wood, we're up against our break. We'll be right back after these short messages. Folks, you're listening uh, to Patrick Wood, author of Technocracy Rising. Technocracy Rising. Must-have book. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Patrick Wood about his book Technocracy Rising The Dark Horse of the New World Order Folks, if you missed the first half of the program, I urge you to go back and listen to it as well as the rest of the program We have only uh, scratched the surface on a number of issues pertaining to technocracy what it means, the history behind it how it relates to the New World Order and works like George Orwell's 1984 and other authors that talked about a brave new world, a new world order being ruled by a scientific dictatorship through a scientific elite. And we have these today, these secret societies, if you want to call them that. Uh, folks, the book Technocracy Rising has created quite a stir among people that pay attention to world events, folks. You can go to Mr. Wood's website, and let me pull it up here. Technocracy.news. That's technocracy.news. Sign up for his uh, newsletter. You can get his book also on Amazon in paperback and Kindle edition. The reviews are fantastic. Again, bookmark Patrick's site, technocracy.news. We talked about a number of things again, as I said, in the first half of the show, and we are going to get into covering some new ground in this segment and into the next hour. We talked about the transforming of the economy. We talked about how technocracy is the science of social engineering, the system of scientific dictatorship, and no spender left behind. I really like that phrase, no spender left behind. Reminds me of the passage in the Bible about the mark of the beast. Anyway, back to Patrick. Uh, Patrick, I want to thank you again for, for coming on the show. Uh, let's get into some of the areas that we have not talked about. In your book, you have it laid out uh, in a way that is, uh, in my opinion, uh, very helpful because you put it together. Uh, it, it's just very succinct. And we've covered so far, you know, the history and, and what is technocracy, uh, the trilateral commission and the history before that, the transforming economics. Let's get into how technocracy can transform government, religion, even law. Wow. 
those are those are difficult <clears throat> difficult topics uh, for people to get their head around. But let's try it. <laughs> okay, um, we have one of the smartest my, audiences if, in the in the world. So <laughs> so don't be afraid. Is, if my theory is correct, and I ask, I say that rhetorically. I fully believe that it is correct at this point. But uh, if it's correct, and we should see this transformation process taking place across the whole spectrum of society, uh, purposely so, not just kind of happenstance, but happening on purpose. <clears throat> we see, for instance, with, uh, let's say, transforming government. Well, it's interesting that back in, uh, right after the, the Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro conference that produced uh, uh, what we saw with Agenda 21, we saw that <clears throat> that Bill Clinton um, started, well, let's see, 1992 was the, the Earth Summit to produce the book. Um, let me just get my timeline straight here. Um, in March of 93, Clinton and Gore, President and Vice President, both members of the Trilateral Commission, by the way, they announced a national partnership for reinventing government. An interesting, I mean, nobody really paid attention. I remember that very day. I wasn't, I had no, no idea about technocracy even then. I thought, wow, it's reinventing government. Dang. Probably needs to be reinvented, you know, like maybe you serve the people for a change. Well, that wasn't it. <laughs> that wasn't it at all. Uh, a month later, the Agenda 21 book was published. Um, two months after that, Clinton signed an executive order called the President's Council on Sustainable Development. He didn't waste any time. Uh, even though it wasn't law in our country, he that you know he said we're doing this, guys. Didn't matter. We're going to do it by executive order. Um, three months after that, Clinton signed another executive order called the National Performance Review, reinventing government. And the rest is history. <clears throat> this transformed the executive branch of our government, which is, that's what we look when we say the government, it's basically the executive branch. All of the agencies and how they interact with people and stuff like that. That's, that's the government supposed to serve the people. Well, <clears throat> thanks to Bill Clinton and Al Gore, the government was reinvented for the sake of implementing sustainable development. It, completely opposite of what the founders of our country intended that government would be. And nobody challenged it back then. <clears throat> they later called anybody who even mentioned the word Agenda 21 a nut you know, part of that vast right-wing right conspiracy, you know, that's a, oh, that's a myth. Who ever heard of that? <laughs> In 2009, the Department of Homeland Security released a lexicon uh, listing several different belief systems and ideologies as uh, possible domestic terrorist or extremism, in which one of them was Agenda 21, another one was a Christian identity, another yeah. one was a, the Patriot Movement, uh, anti-global warming, and etc. Yeah. And, and they do this. This is how they, you know, um, 
try to scare people into submission and and label those uh who oppose their agenda yeah yeah um <clears throat> so government was indeed reinvented and you know today people look at the government most people have absolutely no clue about this transforming process that took place but what they do know what they see on the surface of it they understand that there's something wrong with the executive branch because the Congress has absolutely no control over it. Absolutely no control. There's, it's like the Congress has been neutered. They you have. Know? I mean, it, they have they, through, they've through just, the yeah. executive branch. Uh, the executive uh, branch has allowed each individual agency department head to change the law through the Federal Register without any congressional approval. Which is right. how they've made forty some thousand changes alone to the Obamacare bill, and how they set new policy without having a vote. Exactly. So, you know, this is one of the byproducts of the reinvention of government. They have completely isolated Congress, to where Congress is thoroughly irrelevant. And I hate to say that. I mean, I, I'm not bashing Congress. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I love our, I love the Republican form of government that we're supposed to have. But that's not what we have today. And, and you know, we have sent some good people to Washington over the last 30 years. I, I just, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you almost want to cry over the whole thing. But we sent some good men and women to Washington occasionally. And they get there, and after they're there, about two months, it's like, where did they go? <laughs> what happened to old Bill? What happened to old Mary? And all of a sudden, they've been completely consumed by the system, and they're marching around like good little robots, like the rest of you know the the people around them, completely ineffective at doing what they said they're going to do when they got to Washington D.C. And these were good people. I am convinced they were good people before they got there. But something happens when you go to Washington. I don't know what it is. You go there and you spend too much time, man. You're, you're, it's like the Borg, you know, on Star Trek, remember? <laughs> the Borg, <laughs> yeah. we will assimilate. We will assimilate. And, yeah. you know, it's like you get around these people and all of a sudden you find yourself changing. And well, they have before extortion, you know it, bribery, uh, and a number of ways to make people comply with their agenda, uh, you know, yep. to wholesale just making something up to to ruin a person's name and reputation if they don't play ball. I know. They have ways to beat you down and beat you up. So at this point, you know, I've been convinced for some time we're not going to change anything. I don't care who we send to Congress. We're not going to ch- It's not going to change. You can, you know, you can work as hard as you want, send anybody you want, but... They're not going to be. It doesn't matter if you're a congressman or senator. You will not change anything at this point in time. You will not change anything. That's sad. I could almost say the same thing about our national election as well. Because no, you're right. you're you know, even right. if even if Trump gets elected, and I expect that he will. Quite honestly, I, just the way I look at the political spectrum, I think he's going to get elected. But. <clears throat> Trump's going to get in there, and he's going to have his first cabinet meeting. You can just see how this is going to play out, where all the different secretaries of these agencies come to the table. And 
even if he appoints brand new ones all the way across the board, you know, they're going to come to the table and they're going to say, uh, this is how things work around here. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, now, unless he's willing just to shut down some of those agencies, which is what Ron Paul wanted to do, by the way, uh, and I think probably that could happen just fine. Just shut them down. Tell them all go home. You're fired. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? I, you know, how about how about just sending HUD home? Oh man, I just can't imagine. Uh, how about just dismantling the whole Obamacare nightmare? Yeah, you know, just oh, just yeah. you know, but that's that's not going to happen. I, you know, that's a nice dream. It is a nice but dream. You he, make a good point because it, you know people are looking to the presidential. Uh, the, whoever gets uh, elected, well, specifically Trump, as their political savior, and we know there's no um, political there's no political solution to a spiritual problem. And this is like having a new yeah. pastor at your church, and because you have a new pastor at your church, that all, all of a sudden all the sin in your life is going to be cleaned up and taken care of. When in reality, it needs to start at you know the individual level. And each and every one of us needs to do our part, and then to the local level, state level, and federal level for changes. But in fact, people look at it in, in the backwards direction, looking for you know the president to save all the woes of society, and that's just not realistic in any uh, society. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we we talked a little bit about government. Let's um, let's look at the. Let's look religion. at uh, the religious side. Yeah, the religious side, of course. It's interesting that the religions of the world have climbed on board with sustainable development, uh, climate change stuff, green economy. They, uh, When I say they've climbed on board, I mean they have climbed on board. The, the Catholic, uh, well, let's just start with the Pope. The Pope wrote an encyclical last summer on climate change. He took his encyclical and presented it to a joint session of the United Nations last fall. (laughs) And the Catholic Church is sold out, lock, stock, and barrel, to what I call green religion. And all the rest of them have, too. And not just Christian, not just the Christian side of things, but everybody, you know... Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, the whole gamut of world religions are bought into this. And in 2014, there was a big interfaith summit on climate change. Interfaith is that buzzword. It means all the different churches of the world and all the other religions of the world came. Everybody was represented. The World Council of Churches issued a press release after that conference was done. And here's what the World Council of Churches said, direct quote from their press release. There has never been such a large amount of religious environmental activity in one location in the history of the world. This week will mark a watershed in the history of religion. It will be the time that people remember as the time when the world's faiths declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths. Close quote. Yikes. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, wow. Say, okay, well, uh-huh. Hmm. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? All the religions of the world 
have declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths. And we see this trickling down even into the evangelical church today as well. Um, you know, where people are all concerned about this stuff and things like social justice now has trickled down on the backs of all this because the, the, <clears throat> the United Nations is big on this, the whole concept of social justice. You hear it everywhere. And every every one of their websites, social justice this, social justice that, and it travels on the back of, of you know green stuff, sustainable development stuff like that. Just incredible. So yep, the the world's religions have sold out to this whole thing. They're supporting the structure at this point, and uh, <clears throat> it's even slipped down into the evangelical churches. Many of them, as I said, as well. Um, so that's a transformation that's taken place. And, well, okay, you can't, I mean, you can't do much about that. It's just the way it is. If your church is involved in any of this green stuff, uh, you have two choices. You either go slap the pastor hard across the right cheek. Oh, I'm just kidding. You, you either go slap your pastor and say, what are you doing? Don't do this. This is, this, this is wrong. No, no, no. And show them why it's wrong. Or you put your tennis shoes on and you run like crazy. I don't know. Your choice, I suppose. You can either stay and try and confront them or run. You probably won't do anything to change them, but maybe you feel a duty and a responsibility to to tell them and confront them because maybe you've been at that church for 20 years or 30 years, you know, and that's your family. And all of a sudden they change. You didn't change, they changed. Yeah, and you did an interview with Sheila Zelensky. She's a, a friend of the show and she wrote a book the green gospel where she gets into oh, yes. this a lot and oh, yes. you know, the, the world council of churches and uh these this interfaith movement is something that is so appalling uh, to me as a christian and it's not only the interfaith movement it is the churches especially the christian churches in general before the supreme court uh gave their opinion on gay marriage or homosexual marriage I had to leave the Presbyterian Church because they voted as a church organization to adopt homosexual marriage before it was even considered law or fiat law in this country. And so many churches have done the same. And they're also adopting this interfaith movement where they are combining Judaism, Islam, and Christianity into one religion. Yep. And they expect people to accept this. Yep. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> let's talk about reflexive law. You brought that up too. Great topic. This blew my mind. By the way, this whole con- topic of reflexive law. You've read my chapter. What chapter number is that? Reflexive law. Yeah, I forget offhand. It's. I think uh, it is a uh, number. Yeah, chapter uh, seven. seven. Yeah, chapter seven. Transforming law. You read my chapter. You understand my personal journey to understand reflexive law. It was, it was just, I, I, using the word miraculous just would be kind of cheap, but <clears throat> how I discovered reflexive law was just amazing because I'm not a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was growing up, but I, I'm not a lawyer. But reflexive law was an alternative legal system, legal theory that was developed back in the mid-1980s by a German scholar. And it spread like wildfire because it was a legal system that would be used to support sustainable development. 
with the, you know that's the economic system technocracy whatever the old the old rule of law would never ever ever work for technocracy there's all kinds of reasons why it wouldn't work but it would not work so the scholars came up with a new economic theory and they called it reflexive law and it's twisted. I, I can't. I'm not even going to try to tell you exactly what it is. It's twisted. <laughs> I, this is something but, I, re- I read this chapter two or three times, and I I have a very uh, light grasp of it. Okay. But it okay. is. Do you, um, do you agree? Important. It's twisted. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Very well, much so. I know. Here's here's one statement from one of these scholars. That, that just tells you what reflexive law is all about. This is a very interesting quote. This guy wrote, At the same time, sustainable development's broad sweep strains our intellectual grasp. I, this is my emphasis, okay? I just, I can't help it. I, I, I'm not trying to imitate anybody, but you just got to say it this way, right? At the same time, sustainable development's broad sweep strains our intellectual grasp of its meaning and outruns the capacity of our current legal and political systems to channel society's activities towards its achievement. Just pause for a second. What balderdash, what what (laughs) audacity this guy would have to say something like this. It outruns the capacity of our current legal and political systems. Okay, out with the old, in with the new. Okay? Then he goes on, quote, There is no doubt that sustainable development needs new paradigms to transform it from visionary rhetoric to a viable political goal. Close quote. Did you catch that? What are they? What Absolutely. even even the experts? What were they calling sustainable development? Visionary rhetoric. <laughs> yeah. You see, back in the day, 1973 to 1983, all of this stuff about sustainable development was just visionary rhetoric. Now, can I translate that? I don't want to. I Please won't be do. Rude or rude. <laughs> it's BS. That's all. It's just BS. Visionary rhetoric. It's nothing. It's talk. It's just a pipe and you know pipe dream in the sky. But they had to transform it. If they wanted to get there, they had to transform it into a viable political goal. Now that required other things like propaganda, the United Nations, sustainable development, global warming punishing the deniers and all this other stuff that's all in view here but reflexive law was this new paradigm to transform it from visionary rhetoric to a viable political goal now I came out of a farming community in California and I've watched my farmer friends and some family and stuff like that get beat up by the eco movement because they get sued all the time over you know, some stupid little, you know, two-toed snail darter or something is off in a corner of their property. Oh, you can't plow over there. You might hurt the little two-toed snail darter. He'd been almost extinct for a thousand years. It's like, okay, how can you get taken to court and whooped like a dog 
and lose pitifully and be punished and fined and in some cases arrested and put in jail over a two-toed snail darter or whatever the heck it was out on a corner of your property that you've been farming, you and your family, for a hundred years successfully. Well, I'll tell you how they lost every single case in court because the lawyers for the environmental lawsuits brought reflexive law along with them and applied it to their cases in court and even the judges did not see the sleight of hand. <laughs> they never saw it. Maybe some of them were participating with it, but most of them never saw it in the early days. They got schnuckered. And once they started losing cases, the farmers just continued to lose cases and the environmentalists just continued to win cases and they've won virtually every stinking case for the last 40 years because of reflexive law. It was a new paradigm to transform sustainable development from visionary rhetoric to a viable political goal. I guess I get worked up about that, don't I? <laughs> well, no, it, it is uh, it is incredible. And um, it's interesting uh, in reading uh, from in your book here, uh, in the chapter we're talking about seven, Transforming Law, um, you write the following. You say um, uh, this, that as rules are developed and added to other rules, what appeared chaotic is now supposed to have order and harmony. However, the thought of order from chaos is no better than Darwin's unproven theory that species evolve from less complex to more complex. The legal world today experiences more chaos than ever before. The problem with reflective law is that it cannot operate in a vacuum, as is suggested, but is at all times subject to those who control it. It is ripe for manipulation. Reflective law practitioners can thus direct discourse, the outcome, the rulemaking, in a very real sense, like the Old West vigilante concept of the local self-appointed sheriff being judge, jury, and executioner. And that's so very well said, uh, Mr. Wood, as we are coming up against our top-of-the-hour break. Folks, you're listening to Patrick Wood, the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. I urge each and every one of you to visit his website and get a copy of this book. It's so crucial. Uh, you can go to technocracy.news. That's technocracy. Dot news. Also, his books are available on Amazon in paperback and on Kindle. Uh, folks, go to Amazon and search Technocracy Rising. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have Mr. Wood on with us. This is his first time on the Hagman and Hagman Report. And we went through two hours of content already. When we come back, we're going to talk about a few more issues from uh, the Total Surveillance Society to Transforming Humanity um, and the final clamps of the New World Order uh, in our society from transforming Christianity to the Earth's Charter and what actions we can take in this war against transhumanism, technology and God-created human race. We'll be right back.
technocracy rising, the Trojan horse of global transformation, the dark horse of the new world order. We're talking with Patrick Wood, the author of Technocracy Rising. Folks, it's been a fantastic two hours so far. we got one hour left and still a number of uh, issues to get into. We left off with Transforming Law, and we're going through the table of contents in the book. Um, we have a few chapters left, Transforming Energy, the Global Smart Grid, the Total Surveillance Society, Transforming Humanity, Transforming Christianity, and the uh, appendix in there, the Earth Charter, as well as Taking Action. Uh, Mr. Wood, we have uh, a lot to cover. I want to turn it over to you and let you cover what you think is most important in this last hour. Oh, wow. We have covered a lot of ground already, you know, and I feel like, gee, we just started, didn't we? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Feels like that. Oh, my gosh. I know. There's just so much. Um, I, I felt that at times that, um, you know, if I could if I could stand up and just start speaking and spill everything out that's in my brains, it might well take eight or nine or ten hours to do it. <laughs> but um, there's just a lot of stuff. I want to talk about – we need to talk about education. We kind of missed that on the transformation of government. Um, okay. I put it as a as a subtitle within that ch- uh, chapter. <clears throat> but education is something every it's on everybody's mind. I'm sure your audience fully understands what um um what common core is and oh, maybe yeah. some things are what's wrong with it. Uh, nothing <laughs> nothing worse for those elected officials than to see a see a a pack of angry mama bears coming at them, you know, because they're messing with their kids. But people understand there's something wrong in education. The technocrats of the 1930s had a lot to say about education. And it was what they called a service sequence of society, kind of like other services, but uh, you know, education is a service. It's not a manufacturing type of a thing. But the Technocracy Study Course, which is written by M. King Hubbard primarily, talked about education. And he said, uh, the book said, quote, among the service sequences are education. This would embrace the complete training of the younger generation. And listen to this. I'm, this is a direct quote. And public health, medicine, dentistry, public hygiene, and all hospitals and pharmaceutical plants, as well as institutions for defectives. Yeah, and, and Mr. Wood, if I can uh, jump in here, I have done countless uh, <laughs> weeks worth of research. I've probably read every government PDF uh, and guidance document on the subject of uh, pa- patient-centric healthcare, electronic health records, um, the global unique identification devi- uh, device, and all these systems from the uh, National Biosurveillance Project to the brain mapping uh, project that they have going. And there's an executive order that the president signed on the 24th of November in 2009 where he established a bioethics commission and in the executive order it said that we would face the intersection of science and human rights and that's what really got me going down this uh, research road of the RFID chip or a technology similar to that which we talked about earlier categorizes each and every uh, living species and 
has the potential to give it a mark and and make a system out of it to where if you're not part of the system, as Bible prophecy says, you might not be able to buy or sell. What has your research shown in this in this uh, area? <clears throat> well, I think that's where it's headed. Um, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a visible mark or um, an invisible mark, that's probably could be discussed a lot. But um, the point is uh, the ability to buy or sell. That's what it's, <laughs> That's the main thing. However, it's going to happen. It's going to allow the system to kick some people out uh, completely so that they can't buy or sell. And, of course, their economic fare would be very poor from that day forward. But people are being, people are being conditioned for this, even now, especially in the education system, to accept this kind of thinking. You know, <clears throat> the, the technocracy study course wrote about what education should be, and they said that the education system is to train the entire younger generation indiscriminately as regards all considerations other than inherent ability, a continental system of human conditioning. That's, the, that's what they called it, a continental system of human conditioning. Entire generation now for probably the last 15 years is being conditioned to accept this. It's it's just incredible. And these poor kids that are walking around, they just don't have a clue. But they're they're receiving propaganda, not education. And the other thing that's really interesting on how this web is woven together, the 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 technocracy study course also wrote about hospitals and education systems in the same sentence, in the same breath. They, they said in one place, um, and this is a direct quote, there is likewise a complete record on all hospitals, on the education system, amusements, and others on the more purely social services. This information makes it possible to know exactly what to do at all times in order to maintain the operation of the social mechanism at the highest possible load factor and efficiency. So they brought the topic up that education and healthcare ought to be together. And you know what's interesting? That the 400 points of data that's continuously collected with Common Core, Common Core is not about education, it's about the data. Obamacare wants incessant amounts of data on every person that signs up. It's not about your health care. It's about your data. I was shocked to find out in the down in the bowels of the Affordable Care Act, I actually read it once, like Nancy Pelosi suggested. I'd find out after they passed it. I, okay, I, I read it. There is a clause down in the bowels of that document that says the Affordable Care Act provides for establishing government clinics within public schools <laughs> to act in concert with the school system to provide mental health services, uh, reproductive services, etc., etc. Nobody ever noticed that. Nobody's ever talked about it, to my knowledge. It's there. You can go look it up. It's incredible. But what I'm, the point I bring it up, the history versus what's here now today, is 
There ain't nothing new under the sun, right? This is not new stuff. This was not new ideas. This was all cooked up back in the 1930s. And we just see it being played out today. But if you wonder, if you want to connect all the dots, and you wonder why stuff is happening today, it's just crazy stuff. If you understand where it's coming from, it makes perfect sense. It really does. Absolutely. From the new international economic order to the uh, green agenda to Agenda 21, all different systems of total control, you know, one for the economy, one for the religion, uh, one for, you know, the uh, citizens of the earth and, you know, to maintain their carbon footprint. It is all about total control over every aspect of our life from cradle to grave, from purchase yeah. to uh, product. That's it. Yep. That's a good that's a good way to put it. We really haven't talked much about the Trilateral Commission. I do you think people are do they have uh, a deficit on that now or should we try and bring up a little oh, bit yeah. about how do how do they fit in this whole process? Well, yeah, let's get um, into that because I I uh my father and me have done extensive research on the tri- Trilateral Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh me specifically on Zbigniew Brzezinski. I think mm-hmm. I have all of his books um even the, the ones from the 40s and 50s. And that man is a genius. Uh, sadly, I think he is an evil genius. Um, yep. because he has a brilliant mind. It's just used for the, the, you know, worst, uh, purposes that you can use one for. Um, from eugenics to what we talked about, total population control. But he is one of the founders of the Trilateral Commission, David Rockefeller being another one. And these are the men behind the agendas, the mentors to the presidents, the advisors to those in power. So let's definitely get into the trilateral commission. Right. Well, the word trilateral simply comes from uh, the idea that they had members from three different continents, they had North America, Europe, and Japan, where they drew their membership from. Initially in 73, there was only 97 members from the United States, but there were a total of 289 members. And the others were from Europe and from Japan and included uh, some bankers, industrialists, academics, politicians, media, uh, law firms, uh, some NGOs, a very powerful group of people. They were hand-picked. You didn't apply for membership. They picked you uh, based on what they thought you could add to the whole thing. But what happened in 1976, that's just three years after the commission was formed, you had Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale elected president, vice president to the to uh, the United States government. Both Carter and Mondale were members of the Trilateral Commission, and Carter immediately appointed Brzezinski to be his uh, uh, national security advisor. Um, but he came in as president, saying he didn't know anybody in Washington. He didn't know what he's going to do. He, he was an outside guy, you know. He just a poor country farmer from Georgia. And um, he didn't know what he was going to do when he got the beltway. Well, what he did was he stacked his uh, cabinet with members of the Trilateral Commission. That's what he did. Uh, at one point in time, all but one member of his cabinet were, were members of the Trilateral Commission at the same time. It was a hijack, literally, in my opinion. Uh, that's one-third, again, of U.S. membership got appointed to top cabinet administration post by Jimmy Carter. They dominated. And their original policy, of course, was to create a new international economic order. They wanted to promote interdependence. 
They wanted to promote free trade and all kinds of other stuff. But the book that set the course, what, what got Brzezinski and Rockefeller together was Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages. That was mm-hmm. uh, published in 1970, and the subtitle to the book is the point, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. Yep. And technotronic is a good substitute for the word technocratic. And it was interesting that Brzezinski happened to be a professor of political science, and guess where? This was in the in this, in this, uh, uh, late 60s and the, uh, up, up until 1970. He was a professor of political science at Columbia University, <laughs> the same place where technocracy was housed in 1932. Isn't that, uh, okay, that's, maybe that's just coincidental. <laughs> well, you know, he probably was, uh, he probably was just, uh, <laughs> you know, starting his teaching career in 1930s at Columbia. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. As old as he is. Somehow, I know, somehow I have a feeling that he, you know, the halls of academia keep talking about stuff long after, you know. I, I just can't imagine it wasn't still kicking around. But here's what happened with the Trilateral Commission. You say, why did they want the executive branch? Well, here's what, here's how it played out. The U.S. trade representative, the guy that the president appoints to negotiate all of the trade agreements for Congress, Since 1976, there's been 12 appointed USTRs. Nine of them have been members of the Trilateral Commission, including the current one, Michael Froman, who was negotiating TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Transatlantic Investment Trade Partnership, TTIP. Uh, Here's another stat for you. Uh, The president also gets gets to appoint the World Bank president. That's the way it works, the IMF guy comes from Europe uh, the World Bank president comes from U- U.S. There have been eight since Jimmy Carter six out of eight have been members of the Trilateral Commission okay well the World Bank is the engine of globalization isn't it <laughs> and what kind of better power could you have than to have control over the United States trade mechanism as well as the World Bank if you wanted to direct the course of affairs in the world. Wow. Well, let's look at National Security Advisors just for a second, too. That's the gatekeeper to the president. Nobody gets to see the president ostensibly, except that it's filtered through the NSA. There have been 17 since Jimmy Carter. Ten out of 17 have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Now, including the current one, by the way, Susan Rice. Carter, or not Carter, but Obama has been surrounded by members of the Trilateral Commission since he stepped into office. He's had as his NSA General James Jones, Tom Donlan, and Susan Rice. All three have been members of the Trilateral Commission. So you see, this is, this is how they got control of the trade mechanism throughout the world. Uh, incredible that they could pull off this kind of hegemony right under our nose, but nobody nobody gets excited about economics. They, you know, big whoop, that's not exciting. Yeah, not until the retirement uh, disappears. I know, not until yeah, not until it all falls apart and everybody's out of work and receiving their energy credits onto their little plastic card or whatever. But this is what they did. And so 
it shouldn't be any surprise, for instance, when uh, in, in 1987 there was a commission concluded called the Brundtland Commission that had been sp sponsored and ordered by the United Nations that produced a book called Our Common Future. That book's still available in print it's on Amazon. Our Common Future. It was authored primarily by the head of that task force, Gro Harlem Brundtland. She's a European. And she was uh, appointed by the head guy at the UN to do this study, produce this book. It was called the Brundtland Commission. And the United Nations later said, with pride, with pride that were it not for Gro Harlem Brundtland, there would have been no meeting in 1992. There would be no publication of Agenda 21. There would be no doctrine on sustainable development were it not for Gro Harlem Brundtland. <laughs> and she was the one that chaired the task force that ended in 1987. Five years later, the first Earth uh, Charter or Earth Conference took place. Um, and Agenda 21 popped out. Here we are today. Let me tell you, Grow Harlem Brundtland, you won't be surprised at this, she was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Bingo. You hmm. see, this whole thing, everywhere you look, these people's fingerprints are on, if you will, the dead body. <laughs> That's a bad yeah. way to put it. But everywhere you look, their fingerprints are on it. And it's unmistakable. The lady that, the, the USTR that wrote up NAFTA, the chief architect of NAFTA, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. So was George H.W. Bush that put her up to it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. was Bill Clinton that shoved it down our throats after he got elected. Uh, you know, every... Everything has happened to us along the way. You, you see these people's fingerprints, and it's unmistakable, absolutely unmistakable. And the Trilateral Commission has been the vehicle. It's not just their solely their idea, but they are the mechanism that has been used to make it happen. And here yeah. we are today. They here we are the today. They set the agenda that the elected officials... Uh, carry out or at least read from their teleprompters they are the people that are behind the, the powerful uh, elected ones they're the shadow government the guy that Absolutely. gave Obama all of his climate change policy is Hillary Clinton's campaign manager John Podesta mm -hmm. John Podesta is a member of the Trilateral Commission I think he's one of the guys I, I compare him to Henry Kissinger he's that bad that's pretty bad that's pretty bad He's a snake in the grass. And he single-handedly, this is, the New York Times even said this, he single-handedly crafted the president's climate change policy, the clean, the clean energy policy, and he's the guy that did it, folks. He's a member of the Trilateral Commission. Now he's overrunning Hillary's campaign. And I'm glad to report that just this week it was announced that the the FBI and the Department of Justice is investigating John Podesta and his brother, who together have one of the largest, most nefarious lobbying firms in Washington, D.C., named after themselves. And they're being investigated for all kinds of stuff right now. That's wonderful. I hope they go down with Hillary. Maybe they'll get the, maybe they can get maybe. the same jail cell. 
Maybe they can find some intent this time. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> like, like how about, you know, in this case, the, the scope of this is somebody is trying to steal the entire planet. <laughs> this is true. Yes, They're trying to true. steal the entire planet. It's not just about, you know, that thousand acres out of Montana anymore. It's, hey, let's go for the whole enchilada. Let's get yeah. it all. <laughs> yeah. Folks, read the UN Charter. Read their, uh, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Charter of the United Nations, and their goal and conquest of international law, international courts and tribunals, and as we talked about earlier on this show and throughout the show, uh, the total control of all resources, um, and obviously their goals, they make it sound so much better than what it is. They're going to, you know, uh, uh, destroy poverty. They're going to uh, have equality not only in employment but in uh, you know classes in society. They're going to lessen natural disasters. On and on and on. You know, end terrorism and other humanitarian crises. These are all excuses that sound wonderful, um, but are obviously just to get their foot in the door to get that total control. And as the Bible says. Um, you know, the liberal will devise, you know, liberal things and they will steal even from the, the poorest of the poor. And I'm paraphrasing out of Isaiah there. Uh, but this is, these are the people, the same agenda who tried to build the Tower of Babel. And they left being, having their languages confounded and, and being, uh, separated into 70 different nations. But the agenda, was never ended. It was still in place, and we see that happening today. Uh, Mr. Wood, we have about three minutes before the break, and when when we uh, come back from the break, if we can get into uh, what can we do as uh, individuals, and especially uh, the Christian religion, what can we expect to see uh, in Christianity, both inside the church and with the remnant Christians who are out there trying to... Uh, bring awareness and spread the the gospel of Jesus Christ to others and if we can also talk about the uh or at least touch on the smart grid technology and this is something my dad wanted to bring up the the smart meters what role those play um in this technocracy of in in agenda of total control sounds good i'm ready for it one of my favorite topics um, well, we have just a few minutes before the break. Um, okay. What do you have uh, coming up? Do you have any new projects, books? You got any uh, big <clears throat> interviews on the horizon? I I am working. Yes, I am working on my next book in a series. Uh, it will continue the technocracy rising meme, but it will have a different subtitle. So uh, kind of like kind of like you know Harry Potter and the uh, blank 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 whatever. You know, it's like <laughs> okay. I would have technocracy rising. And the evil witch from no, I don't know what it's going to be, but I am uh, I am in process of writing it, and uh, my uh, my work my working title is going to be something comparable to the emerging cult of science, and um, yeah. I do believe that there's unmistakable markers that uh, that technocracy and transhumanism share a common religious foundation, and it is turning into a religion. And uh, yeah, I think that's and something it, that needs to be explored. It's very sad and scary, folks. And transhumanism, 
We've covered that on this show uh, several times, but if you look at the logo, it is uh, an H in this, uh, mm-hmm. the letter H in a circle with the plus sign next to it. And when we look in the in the Bible, when it says you know that they worship the creation more than the Creator, when they turned uh, what God made into uh, what God made as incorruptible, they turned into corruptible. Uh, I didn't say that right, but folks, you understand what I'm saying. They have perverted God's creation and continue to do so. And transhumanism, uh, at least for the the human beings who are alive, are those who are trying to escape um, going to hell or escape the escape the afterlife, which the Lord has created. And you go to heaven or you go to hell. These people think they can be uh, immortal, as the fr- what Satan. Uh, the first lie they told Adam and Eve in the garden is that you can be as gods and you can be immortal. Um, the, the, the fallen angels, the Nephilim, the evil spirits have an idea that they can storm heaven and defeat God. And at the same time, they're selling a lie to the human beings that through computers and the merger of man and machine, they can escape death and escape the eternal damnation that is to come and these people are buying it up left and right as they are afraid of what can happen when Jesus returns. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report on this Thursday edition with author Patrick Wood. And let me tell you something, this is a a very fun interview that we're doing tonight. His book, Technocracy Rising, that's Technocracy Rising, talks about the dark horse of the new world order and it's not what you think it is it's not communism it's not socialism it is technocracy and it starts with a new international economic order and moves to total control of everything that we consume do and even say and we see this happening today right before our eyes patrick's website is technocracy.news Folks, go to technocracy.news, bookmark the site, sign up for the free newsletter, get his book on Amazon, paperback, or Kindle. We'll be right back. Human enslavement ruled by a handful of oligarchs. That is the vision of the powers that be who are human in the darkness, the spirits of darkness that are behind the agenda and the people of evil in this world. We are talking with author Patrick Wood, his book, Technocracy Rising. Folks, again, Go to his website, sign up for his free newsletter. His website is technocracy.news. And you can get his book on Kindle and on paperback at Amazon. Just go to his website, technocracy.news. He's been gracious enough to spend two and a half hours with us already, and it's been a very informative two and a half hours. we got one segment left. We're going to hit it hard in this last segment. 
And, Mr. Wood, I'm going to turn it back over to you and let you get us started. Yeah, that's good. Let me let me throw out uh, a topic that we alluded to at the beginning called scientism. I, I think it's important that people understand the mentality behind a lot of this stuff. Actually, the primary, uh, I, I think the primary idea. We talked about Henri, that's Henry, de Saint-Simon. And <clears throat> he is the, considered the father of technocracy. He also was one of the first people to write about scientism. And here's what he said. This is a direct quote from one of his papers. A scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And scientists are superior to all other men. Close quote. Um, we're not dealing with just parlor room discussion here. This is an evil statement that science has the means a crystal ball to predict the future or that scientists are superior to all other men. This is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thinking. So what does scientism boil down to? Well, it boils down to the application of scientific methods to social and political modeling. It means that science, they believe this, science is the absolute and only access to truth and reality about man and the universe, specifically opposed to the Bible as truth. It believes there is no God, of course. It's predictive, able to foretell a future. They really believe this. It rejects any inquiry that does not agree with it. That's why Al Gore can say, deniers need to be punished. It demands acceptance by non-scientists. This is, that's incredible. And scientism has a priesthood. Both St. Simone and August Comte promoted a priesthood, they talked about this, a priesthood of scientists and engineers to administer and administrate science upon society. And I conclude it's a religion that worships science and the scientific method, exclusive of other competing religions. And it predicts the future and requires a priesthood to declare its truth to the ignorant masses. That's scientism. That's at the base of both technocracy and transhumanism. You're just animals, they say. The, the technocracy study course on page 211, uh, just, just make your hair just stand up. Uh, Hubbard wrote, the human animal responds to its external environment through the mechanisms of the conditioned reflex, which is a purely automatic but tremendously complex nervous control mechanism. These conditioned reflexes are, however, subject to control and manipulation through the device of manipulating an individual's environment. An individual's present conditioning is always the result of all of his own past experiences. I could go on with this. This, this is absolutely off the rails thinking. I don't know, I, you know, I want, it, I want people to understand the importance of what we're talking about here. 
Absolutely. This is not just parlor talk. This is not just political discourse. This is not just a group of academics discussing ideas, you know, smoking cigars and drinking old scotch. No. These people are absolutely off the rails in their thinking. Humans are just animals that respond to external environment by conditioning? Oh, so we're being conditioned, aren't we? Yes, we are. Through our human nature. Yep. You know, these people and this ideology is so evil that when you finally grasp what it means, I will guarantee you, even if you're even if you are not a Christian, you will have the reaction that you're looking straight into the face of hell. That's why we're concerned about this stuff. It's really serious. <laughs> it's it's really a big thing. Mm-hmm. And people need to just spend the time to wrap their head around it. So they can Absolutely. figure out what they should do. Absolutely. And for now those we, of you who who are Christians out there? It's, you know, Jesus said it best: "Fear not that uh, person who can take your your life, but fear that uh, man who can who can take your soul." And right. you know, these people will come for your life. They're seeking to control your life, but we have the courage to stand up and and to face these evil people. Not only to face them, but to proclaim um, the the salvation and, and saving grace of Jesus. Uh, as he laid the groundwork and, and uh, gave the example for us, um, but at the same time he told us to to resist evil constantly, and this is something as Christians we need to be very aware of. And not only that, we need to help our fellow Christian understand the time that we live in and the dangers of the times that we live in. Indeed. And I suppose we ought to talk about some practical solutions, because I believe there are some. Yeah, but absolutely. It, but it's but it's not going to be by electing a certain person to go to Washington D.C. It's not That's going right. to be, uh, you know. I just don't think it's going to happen that way. Yeah, like you said before, it's like uh, it's like hiring a new pastor for your church, and you pay him a bunch of money to go out and do what you should be doing. <laughs> You know, namely talking to your own neighbors about, you know, the Bible and Christianity and Christ and so on. But you're satisfied paying the pastor the big bucks. Hey, let him do it, man. I'm just fat, you know, I'm fat happy out here in a pew and whatever. You know, I don't want to do anything. I want to hire him to do it. I give my tithe and I'm relieved of responsibility. That's that's the way people look at our, I know, people look at our national leaders the same way. I'm, I don't need to do anything, but I'm going to work like a dog to get so-and-so elected or, you know, this congressman or that senator or whatever, and I'm going to just put all this time and effort in and because once they get in, man, my, uh, you know, they'll take care of my needs. So that's not the way that life works, folks. It's just not. No. And look at Agenda- Obama and the promises he made. Oh, my rent will be paid. I don't have to pay a car payment anymore. Uh, Remember well, those people? And see, yeah. we're worse off now than we were before he was elected. Yeah, exactly. So... All of this Agenda 21, 2030 Agenda stuff, which we haven't really talked about yet, but may, maybe another show someday. Um, 
All of this stuff has trickled down into every single community in America, bar none. It's everywhere. Thanks to President Bill Clinton's reinventing government, he has spread this stuff in the President's Council on Sustainable Development. He has spread this agenda to every single solitary political unit in our country. Town, city, uh, county, uh, you know, areas. It's everywhere. And there are people who are applying these principles to your community right now as we speak. And you wonder why things are going wrong in your own community. But here's where the mentality needs to be cha- needs to change. People need to get up off their couch, turn off the TV, and go down and start attending their city council meetings. Take a video camera along with you and, tr- and, and, and tape it. Find out what they're doing. Go meet your city manager. You can do it. If you live in a city, it's your right. Go meet your city manager. Find out what he's doing. Request that they give you copies of the contracts that they signed with outside consultants. Find out what your county zoning commission is doing to take away your property rights. This is all part and parcel of Agenda 21. You see, any community that can clean up its own house and that can be done you can't get your hands on anybody in Washington you can't you know you can't that's why you yell at the TV you can get your hands on your city elected people and your city civil servants you know where they are they live in your community most of them you can you can go and see them in their offices you can meet with them they're accessible you can confront them in public meetings that you have that your city has all the time You've got to be willing to do this and get out there and mix it up in your own community because, believe me, if you run sustainable development slash technocracy slash green economy slash whatever you want to call it out of your own community, you will send a message up the food chain that they're in trouble. Yeah, you will. And, folks, uh, many of you remember uh, uh, attorney and friend Billy Bear who was on our show attended a school board meeting in New Jersey where he is a, a parent of a child that pertained to Common Core and he was arrested for asking a question and I bring that up just to let people know that this is not going to be an easy fight but you have power in numbers you know if you can bring more than one person with you to these events when you ask the questions and bring the cameras make sure that you have people who understand what you're doing who will support you so they can't let that happen so it's not just one person that they're trying to drag out instead it would be you know a whole section of people um because when it when it's so out when people are so uninformed that the one informed person uh looks like you know is made to look like a crazy person they have no problem uh getting them dragged out by the police and the, uh, the rest of the people just sit there you know wondering what's going on it takes an informed populace to make the difference Indeed it does, and there are lots of things that people can do. I, I could give you several stories just in recent in recent days where where people have been successful at driving out horrendous policies that were being brought in by deception and just by trickery. And they confronted these people, they confounded them, 
And in one case in Southern California, a fairly large city in Southern California, uh, the city manager got canned, and the city plant, one of the city planners quit. <laughs> and I mean, they raised, they raised havoc within this little group of people who thought they were so smug. You know, at bringing all this stuff in, they're they're trying to write a a general plan that was going to convert the city into an Agenda 21 city with sustainable development. Every you know, sustainable this and sustainable that, and you know, they just they completely upended the policy and sent them packing. Anybody can do that across our country. It just takes it just takes people that will, and, and I won't even I won't even use the word patriot. Forget that. That don't put labels on it. Are you an American? It's your community. What do you want for it? Do you care? I mean, maybe you don't care. You don't care about your community, uh, whether it's a cesspool or not. Some people don't care about the houses they live in. You know, they're just, you know, junkyards, yeah. basically. But, yeah. hey, if that's what, if you don't care, then you keep, keep you go turn on your TV. But I'll tell you, there it's, are enough people, I think, that still care that will be willing to get up off their, their rumps. And get out in the yes. community and start mixing it up. And that's so important you bring that up because this uh, is something we, we hit on uh, occasionally here on, on our show, is that um, the indifference. You know, we see the indifference in the Christian church, and Jesus said that I'd rather you be hot or cold, but because you were indifferent, I will spew you out of my mouth. Um, and we see this with the, you know, the rise of this satanic religion, uh, and when we look at the Christian religion, it doesn't seem like people are as motivated, as engaged, or care about it as much as, and fight for it as hard as people from the satanic religion or from these LGBT groups. Um, and what these people in the Agenda 20, uh, uh, Transforming Our World 2030, the Agenda 2030, they are ambitious. They are working to take what you are indifferent to. And even in their own words, they say that their new agenda requires a global partnership that will ensure implementation. They say the partnership will work in a spirit of global solidarity, in particular solidarity solidarity with the poorest of people in vulnerable situations. They will facilitate global engagement in support of these implementation goals and targets and bring together the governments, private sectors, and civil society, along with the United Nations system and other actors in mobilizing all available resources. So, whether you care about it or not, these people do care about it. Not only do they care about it, they're doing something to make it happen. That's right. And, you know, Aldous Huxley wrote another book about Brave New World in 1958. Most people never tracked on this. It was called Brave New World Revisited. <laughs> that was some some decades after he wrote his first one in 1932. I didn't hear about he, that. Yeah, yeah. You should go pick pick that book up. It's still out there. You got a used copy of it somewhere. Brave New World Revisited from 1958. And here's what he said. This is kind of scary, but here's what he said: The older dictators fell because they could never supply their subjects with enough bread, enough circuses, enough miracles and mysteries. Under a scientific dictatorship. Education will really work, with the result that most men and women will grow up to love their servitude and will never dream of revolution. There seems to be no good reason why a thoroughly scientific dictatorship should ever be overthrown.
close quote. Wow. Now, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to prove him wrong on that because we, we need yeah. to not let it get established that in the first thing. But when you find somebody in your community that is given over to this philosophy who thinks that he's better than everybody else and that he's going to tell everybody else what to do and that he's going to, you know, scientifically engineer your community for your own good. You need to get across a table from a guy like that or a woman and say, ma'am or sir, I have, I have great respect for you as a member of our community, but I want you to look in my eyes as I say this to you about what you're doing here. And you need to look him straight in the eyes. Don't break eye contact. And you need to say to him, I just want you to know I will fight you until hell freezes over, and then I will fight you on the ice. Hmm. I like that. That's what you need to tell him. And then you need to do that. Don't back off. Don't give up. Don't wimp out. Don't get tired. You know? You need to stick with it and do it because that's the kind of resolve they have against you. <laughs> mm -hmm. See, they look at you as a sucker, a pansy, a wimp, a wuss, <laughs> whatever. You yeah. know, somebody who doesn't care. Ah, they're Animals. home watching Monday Night Football while we're having this meeting down here. They're, you know, these people need to be challenged. They're in Absolutely. it for keeps. They're in it for keeps. And if they are successful at establishing this scientific dictatorship like they clearly intend to do, Huxley's prediction might well come true. There might be no good reason why it should ever be overthrown, honestly. Because the old people are going to die off. Now, you're still pretty young, Joe. I know that. But your dad will appreciate what I'm saying. When the old guard is gone, those who can say that to people like this, that were there, they know what America was, was before, etc. When the old guard dies off, the young generation, a bunch of iPhone-worshipping geeks <laughs> that, yeah. that don't know anything about life at all, they're going to be the ones that just walk right into scientific dictatorship think it's wonderful. They'll only be concerned about the next model of iPhone that they're going to get. That's right. Or the next Very version true. of Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, this Pokemon <laughs> Go. Uh, you know, we got about uh, seven minutes left, and um, just a few things, if if we can, while we have time. Uh, just quick comments. Pokemon Go. Is this just a game, or is there something much more sinister to this? I think. I think it's a kind of a transition thing that's happening right now. I think the other shoe is yet to drop on okay. whatever, you know, whatever's happening on a global basis with Pokemon Go. Um, I think there's another shoe that's going to drop. I think it's going to have something to do with virtual reality. Yep. Which I, I is agree. coming on like a, like a freight train right now. So, uh, I'm just watching for that. I, I don't think, uh, I'm, I'm not looking at Pokemon Go as the end of the whole thing. I think that there's a, a greater trap that's being set for the yeah. young people in the world. And I, I don't know that we know what that is yet. Um, another question, uh, I've seen articles in the last few months and they keep, seem to continue to increase from, um, 
you know, being able to change the sensors in your brain. An example is turning off the uh, parts of your brain that uh, deal with your belief system, so shutting off your uh, belief towards God. And nanobots, They there's a new article today talks about mind-controlled nanobots could release drugs inside your brain. In the article, it gets into um, technology being used uh, to control your brain activity. They say a technique that may be useful for treating brain disorders, uh, such as schizophrenia and ADHD. But, I mean, is that real? <laughs> what, what can they do with this nanotechnology? And can they control your mind through these nanobots? Well, it hasn't been demonstrated that nanobots in particular can control your mind or sections of it because they really haven't been created yet that can be inserted in and travel through, you know, very small capillaries and stuff like that. It's probably one day it's probably going to come and they write about that. I mean, that's what they're, that's what they're shooting for. Ray Kurzweil wants to develop a series of nanobots that will actually go into your mind and filtrate your mind and give it, give it uh, the, collectively the ability to download your mind onto an com- external computer. He mm-hmm. thinks that's it's really going to happen someday. Eh, I think he's crazy, but, you know, I, that's, that's just me. Sometimes I go <laughs> overboard, you know. But, yeah, that's what they want to do. Um, but having said that, there are lots of ways, lots of technologies now that are being used to control the mind that don't have to do with nanobots. That's exactly what uh, what Obama's brain research, you know, brain map program is yep. all about. Yep, the he brain he said very the brain initiative. He said very pointedly, as the uh, as mapping the genome was to you know that cut that scientific field, uh, we want to map the human brain and find out exactly how it's working. Now, they're, they're working on that diligently right now. There's been lots of breakthroughs oh, yeah. already, lots of discoveries. And, of course, the the transhuman movement uh, is encouraging the government to spend truckloads of money in pri- you know, in grants and stuff to go out to, to fund all this stuff. Because, yeah. you know, they're, they're smelling pay dirt, you know, like, hey, man, we're going we're gonna to really do it this time once we figure out how to... You know what the human brain is all about. Why? Wow, we can do all kinds of stuff. And well, what was interesting to me is I saw that there is a, a the Methuselah project, and Methuselah was a, a biblical figure who was, I believe, it was Enoch's grandfather or Noah's grandfather, was the yeah. oldest living person in the Bible, 969 right. years old. I just found it very interesting. They used his name to talk about extending human life uh, well beyond the natural. Uh, order of things um right just a few, just three more minutes left i got two questions for you cern uh, do you have any opinions of, on cern and um what they are doing as far as trying to open portals and discover and utilize dark matter well you know i've looked at cern i followed cern for a while i've i've read a bunch of stuff about cern in fact i'm i've already talked about it in my upcoming book already as an example um <clears throat> I don't have a lot of opinion on things like portals, um, dark matter, um, or opening up wormholes to the other side of the universe. I, I really don't. Not to say it can't happen. I'm just saying I don't mm-hmm. have a big opinion on it. I do believe, however, that many of the scientists that are involved in uh, CERN uh, have a very religious bent, not a scientific bent, <laughs> a religious bent to do 
things that are not necessarily directly related to science, but they're more related to religion. That's greatly that's greatly disturbing. Yes, um, it is. So, you know, that's there's there's a lot of a lot of funny business going on with with the belief system and stuff over there. Uh, if they, in my in my mind, if they just wanted to practice science, like I've I've known a couple of physicists in my life, they're good people. If they just wanted to practice their 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 discipline, their science, I probably wouldn't have a problem with anything they did. <laughs> you know, if they were just yeah. normal people, just doing scientific experiments and advancing the cause of physics and whatever, I would say, fine, man. If you got a brain for it, go figure it out and tell you know tell us what it meant. <laughs> That's not the way these people think. That's not the no. way these people think at all. They have You're another exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> they do. Uh, closing question here, um, and this is uh, you can just yes or no this, or get into it a little bit if you want. The chance of a national cyber attack that would cripple our power grid and or um, uh, banking system is that I think something that... that's plausible in the next year or two? I'll, I'll tell you my opinion. In light of technocracy, that would be the last thing in the world they would ever allow to happen. Okay. Because how can you control energy if you wipe out the energy grid? <laughs> how That's can you true. control people if you wipe out the computers? You can't. Their infrastructure is dependent upon energy and computing power. That's their entire life has been poured into infrastructure. I can't imagine that they're not going to protect it with their very lives. Okay. And that makes sense. Uh, I understand that. And I uh, thank you for answering those questions. Mr. Wood, we have reached the end of the program. You have filled all three hours with just uh, fantastic information and content. Uh, Folks, Technocracy Rising, you must get this book. Go to uh, Patrick Wood's website at technocracy.news. And you can sign up for his free newsletter, bookmark the site, Get the book on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle edition as well as paperback. Um, and it's got great reviews, and I've read it twice. I'm going to read it again. It, it ties so much of what is going on in our world uh, to what we don't really see, but we can tell by reading between the lines. Mr. Wood, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can have you back on sometime here in the near future. And if there's anything that you you need from us, you just give us a call. Well, Joe, I sure appreciate it. I appreciate your time and, and dedication to the program to have me on. And, uh, you know, I would say uh, when, where, whenever and wherever I can offer the information that I have for people uh, who want it, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm dedicated to that. So uh, anytime uh, you have an issue or, you know, if there's something I can contribute to the discussion, uh, I'd be glad to be at your service. Thank you so much, Mr. Patrick Wood. You have a great evening, and we will talk soon. Thank you, sir. That will do it for us tonight, folks. Uh, Again, that was Patrick Wood, Technocracy Rising. Get his book, technocracy.news. That will do it for us tonight. Tomorrow night, Dr. Ted Breuer of healthmasters.com will be our guest. That's Dr. Ted Breuer, closing out the week strong. Thanks, each and every one of you, for joining us tonight. We will see you tomorrow.